which comes from John chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. We're going to read this in the ESV. We encourage you to uh, find the scripture. Uh, if you want to find it in a physical Bible or to find it online or to find it um, in a Bible app. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be referencing the scripture throughout the, the message, uh, but let's take a moment to, to read it together. And so it's John chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. May the Lord bless the reading of God's word for us. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. All right, friends, we are in week four of our sermon series, Life in the Spirit. Today's message is called Darkness Cannot Overcome It. And we have been going through uh, just trying to navigate uh, the moment that we find ourselves in in this country where I think there's, there's kind of a reckoning where we are realizing many of the racial injustices uh, that have existed in this country uh, and haven't been fully rooted out. And, uh, you know, a lot of those things have been coming out. Uh, but we wanted to explore as a congregation, how do we navigate this in the Holy Spirit? Not just, you know, from what we're hearing uh, from the media or from, you know, different, uh, you know, there's just all kinds of stuff out there, especially if you look stuff up on the internet. But we want to approach this from, a biblical and a spiritual standpoint. And so we have been using as a template uh, the five stages of grief. And, um, you know, usually this is used for personal grief, uh, but we're, we're kind of using it as a template for uh, just a process of, of moving through uh, and trying to figure out what we do with all of this and recognizing that this is meant to be more than just a moment. You know, we feel bad or we feel angry or we feel outraged, and then we move on with our lives. But we want to take seriously that there are stages to this. And so um, we talked about denial, how maybe the, the first move is to just, you know, uh, try to pretend like there isn't a real problem. Uh, oftentimes we get very angry because of the injustices we see and when we realize that this stuff is real, that's not made up. Uh, there, there's, there's the bargaining that we talked about last week, which is about compromise, about sort of like trying to jump off the, 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 the train of real progress and change that is always difficult and always costly and, and just trying to, you know, maybe just use words or use slogans or uh, use pronouncements on social media to, to just make ourselves feel better, to act like we care when we don't actually change anything. And so today's message I have to be real honest, uh, might be the toughest in many ways because we're going to be talking about depression. And so I just want to be clear uh, from the outset that we're not really going to be talking about uh, depression, like clinical depression, mental illness, that sort of thing, but sort of that, that, that feeling of despondency that we find ourselves in uh, that, that can be prolonged for people uh, when we uh, try to change something and we realize how hard it is to actually do that. And so I just wanted to show just a representation of what depression might feel like. And by the way, uh, just, you know, for full disclosure, um, I have, I've suffered from uh, depression at different stages in my adult life and for a lot of my adult life. Um, I found a lot of healing uh, through therapy and through a lot of different things, but uh, through prayer, uh, through ministry, um, 
but just, just want to share that I, I do have some history of that. And so I, I want to be mindful that probably, you know, there, there are many of you who have gone through some depression. And for, for many people who go through depression, depression, uh, it's, well, this is my representation. It's just, just nothing. It's, it's a feeling of hopelessness. It's a feeling that things aren't going to change, you know? Um, it's like being in a deep, dark pit, and you can't see the light. You know, you don't really believe that things will get better, that what you've experienced before is going to continue. Things won't change. And, um, you know, I, I, so we're going to spend a, a, a good portion of our time this morning uh, talking about the context in which this scripture is going to find us. Because we're going to be talking about light in the darkness, and there is hope. I, I want to assure you there is hope. But in order for us to understand hope, we have to understand the darkness. Um, this was a quote from James Baldwin that we shared last week, but I think it's, it's very relevant today, so I want to share it with you again. Not everything faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And so we have a very dark history uh, in our country uh, that w- of slavery, of treating people as less than, uh, of our black brothers and sisters being treated as property, not being seen as human, Right? I mean, I know it's July 4th weekend, but when the, the founding uh, patriarchs of this country, and they, they were mostly white men, uh, pretty much all white men, um, when they drafted these documents and when they talked about freedom, they weren't talking about black people because they didn't, many of them didn't view black people as human. And uh, many of the, the founding patriarchs of this country were slave owners. The vast majority of them were slave owners. And so... It's a complicated history that, that we, we have, and sometimes we just want to be rah, rah, go America, and we don't want to face that. But we have to if uh, we want any change. And I want to use uh, a, a uh, kind of a metaphor that I heard from Dr. Kemra Jones, and I thought that this was very helpful for us to understand uh, how how difficult the situation that we face of racial injustice and how it's not just going to go uh, away overnight. You probably know that. But I, I thought that this uh, metaphor did a great job of explaining why. And so uh, Dr. Cameron Jones talks about uh, when she and her husband bought their first house, uh, they found these, these wonderful flower boxes all uh, around the outside of their house. And about half the flower boxes had soil in it already. It was already filled with dirt, but half of them were empty. And so her husband was uh, kind of the gardener in the family, and he went out and he bought this this really good potting soil. And so he filled the empty uh, uh, boxes with the, the the fresh potting soil. But the ones that were already had dirt in it, he he didn't bother filling. And then they took seed uh, of flowers and they put those equally into every flower pot. So Dr. Cameron Jones, uh, she's not the gardener in the family, and so she just kind of was like, well, I'll enjoy the flowers when they're out. So she let her husband do, her thi- do his thing of watering all the, the, the flower boxes, and he did that equally to, to all of the flower boxes. And after three weeks, uh, uh, Dr. Jones comes out and expects to see beautiful flowers from all the flower boxes, but what she sees is, is kind of stunning to her. Uh, she's kind of shocked, because when she walks out, Half of the boxes have beautiful flowers that have sprouted up, and the other half have hardly any flowers. It, 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 some of the flowers are just wilted, and they've just kind of come up just a little bit, even though they had equal opportunity. 
right? They had equal opportunity. They were the same seeds. They were watered the same. But what was different? The soil. Because you see, those, those uh, flower pots that were already filled with soil had dirt that was old. And a lot of the nutrients weren't there anymore. A lot of that, that dirt was, was, was very rocky. And so the, 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 the flower boxes that had the fresh potting soil, in those uh, boxes, the flowers, they, they, they just grew really well. The really strong seeds came out really strong, and even the weaker seeds still came up to a moderate height, right? And, and what, what this tale is about, what this metaphor is about, is about environment. Environment makes a big difference, right? And so oftentimes we like to believe that we are all equal. And you hear people say that. They're like, hey, slavery was so long ago, right? Like, like, I mean, seriously, haven't you people gotten over it yet? Right? That's what people say. They act like there weren't ripples from this. And what has happened in this country and what still exists is there are different kinds of soil that people find themselves in. And so... Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about, um, so uh, Dr. Cameron Jones uses this metaphor to talk about what many people uh, uh, describe as institutionalized, or sometimes you call it here it called systemic racism. And so uh, Dr. Jones defines it as differential access to the goods, services, and opportunities of society by race. And by the way, she has a wonderful TEDx talk that this is where I got this from. And so this is a direct quote from from her. And so she uses some examples of these uh, different access that that people might have by race to goods, services, and opportunities. Um, So there's housing, education, employment, income, medical facilities. There's different kinds of environments. Some are cleaner than others. Uh, There's information, resources, voice, right? I mean, just for example, the voice one, uh, maybe some of you saw in some of the primaries in in, uh, different states that uh, a lot of people were drawing attention to the fact that there wasn't equal access uh, in, in, in certain neighborhoods to, to uh, polling places. That uh, in Kentucky, uh, in Louisville, the, the, uh, uh, the largest city in Kentucky and with the, the largest uh, black population in Kentucky, um, th- there was only one polling place. Only one polling place. Now, of course, they use COVID as the reason why, uh, but kind of makes you wonder. You know, there was these lines where people had to wait for hours and hours. And this is not new, right? Like, if you're a political party, you know that there's not a lot of black people voting for you. You're going to try to make it harder for black people to vote. And so maybe some people say, but, you know, Pastor Steve, some of these things, these are just socioeconomic things, right? You're talking about class, not race, housing, education, employment, income, right? But the thing is, brothers and sisters, that the access to these things are like those, those, those different flower beds. They're geographic, right? It depends on where you are. And institutionalized racism exists in this country because people are segregated. They still are. This isn't something that just existed up until the 60s in the South. There's still segregation, 
right? In terms of, you know, there are concentrations, people living in certain urban areas. There's much more black people in certain urban areas than there are in certain suburban areas, right? You know this, right? You, you go to certain parts in the city and you're going to see a lot of one particular race and then you're going to go to other parts like the suburbs and then you're going to see a lot of white people, right? And so um, this isn't something that just happened by accident. Right. Uh, in fact, in 1890, I'm going to be uh, talking from uh, Loki Mulholland, who is the, the son of a uh, of a civil rights activist. Um, he, he's a, a white Southerner. Um, he has this excellent documentary called An Uncomfortable Truth. It's on uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, I, highly, I highly recommend you, you uh, watch that. But I'm going to be using uh, some of the, the facts that he presents uh, in this documentary. And some of them I'm going to be kind of quoting word for word uh, because he knows better than I. Um, but he talks about his own racist history, by the way. But one of the things he does really well in this documentary is he goes through the history of systemic racism. So you can see that this soil is, is uh, that, that some of the soil that we grow up in, it's different. So in 1890, uh, there was, uh, there wasn't really anything that resembled what uh, many people would call the black ghetto, right? Like these concentrated areas of lots of poor black people. In 1890, most what, what people would consider black neighborhoods um, were about 10% black and 90% white because there were just a lot more white people, right? And so there weren't these huge concentrations of black people. But, 19, but by 1930, so something happens in these 40 years that the percentage largely shifts. The concentrations of black people become much more concentrated into cities and into these, these kind of, you know, quote unquote black ghettos. And so by 1930 in Chicago, the percentage of black people living in black ghettos goes from 8.1% to over 70%. That's almost uh, uh, a, what, like a thousand percent increase, right? It's, it's, it's just stunning. And the percentage of black people in Chicago living in black ghettos is 95%. 95% of the black people are concentrated in these black ghettos uh, by 1930. And so contrast that to the Irish population in Chicago, which the Irish were very poor also, but only 3% lived in so-called Irish ghettos. So Irish people were much more spread out, right? They could kind of blend in. But black people were concentrated in these ghettos. Now, is it because the black people just all wanted to hang out with each other? The black people didn't want to be around white people? It was the other way around. White people didn't want to be around black people. So there's a couple things that happen that really shift things in this country. In 1916, there is a film uh, released called The Birth of a Nation. Maybe some of you have heard of this. Have you heard of this? Uh, The Birth of a Nation is this film that was made... uh, that basically talks about, um, it, it's, you know, tries to make black people look monstrous and look like they're going to prey on white women and that they are this, this big threat to white people. And the heroes of Birth of a Nation are the Ku Klux Klan. Ku Klux Klan was kind of a fringe group at this time. But after Birth of a Nation, they made them the white saviors, literally, like riding on horses like knights to vanquish the evil black people. This is real. This happened in our country. They had a viewing of Birth of a Nation in the White House. It's a very, very popular film. 1916. 
So in 1917 to 1921, there is a huge uptick in racial violence against black people. It's something that some people call uh, the Red Summer. Sometimes uh, historians, they say the Red Summer happened in 1919, but now we kind of refer to it, a lot of people refer to it as this broader period of time. It wasn't just one summer, but a period of about five years of massive racial violence, just a lot of lynchings. Uh, a lot of uh, black people were, were, were not just terrorized, but they were forced out of white communities. And so this is a picture uh, from 1919. This is a bunch of white children celebrating uh, a, a, a smoked-out house where a black family used to live. Look up Red Summer images, and you will see tons of pictures like this. This is not an isolated incident. This happened all over our country. And so w- what happened was when there was a black person in a white neighborhood, they're like, we don't want you here. And so they would literally bomb the house or set it on fire to drive them out. One of the worst examples of um, the racial violence happened in 1921 in Tulsa. This is something that wasn't really talked about in the history books, but a lot of people are finding out about this now. It's called the Tulsa Race Massacre. There was something, uh, there was a, a, a community near Tulsa called Greenwood, Oklahoma, where there are many prosperous uh, uh, black people. Uh, they called it the Black Wall Street. And so uh, there was a mob of white people that basically burned down all these businesses, burned down these homes, killed and injured many, many people. Why? Because there were successful black people. This is our history, friends. In Chicago, uh, from 1917 to 1921, there was a, a, a bombing or a house set on fire every 20 days for five years to drive out black people from white neighborhoods. Now, after a while, right, the, like this kind of settled down after this red summer period. And then after a while, it just started to become, you know, they just did it through like housing associations. They had neighborhood improvement associations that would just have very restricted covenants. Black families can't live here. Negroes can't live here, right, in this community. And so they would just drive people out. And these kinds of restrictive covenants were allowed until 1948. Um, and, and then there was this that happened. So um, there's something, maybe some of you have heard of redlining. I didn't fully understand this. I, I would hear this term get thrown around. Uh, but what happened was uh, after the, the New Deal, uh, FDR was trying to help the, the country after the, the Great Depression. And so there was something called the Homeowners Loan Corporation, and, uh, the, the, so, or Hulk for short. And what they did was they went through um, uh, the country and they made kind of districts. They, they, they literally made these maps. This is uh, uh, an old red line map. And so uh, what, what they tried to figure out was what were the, the, the kind of like the worst neighborhoods, right? And the worst neighborhoods were in red. They were considered hazardous. And it tended to be the places where most black people lived. Remember, black people were being forced into, uh, you know, communities, into ghettos, right? Because the white people didn't want to live with them. And so now the black people are concentrated. And what happened with these redlined maps that Hulk created is that people who would give out loans, right? Like, I mean, this is a very easy way for you to progress 
uh, uh, in this society economically, right, is to get a loan, right? You want to start a small business, right? You want to own a home and you can't yet? You get a loan. You get a loan from a bank, right? And then that really helps you out a lot. It really boosts, um, you know, your economic chances. But in this country, for the longest time, what, what banks would do, what, what loan givers would do, is they would look at these maps and be like, oh, well, your home is in this red area. We're not going to give you a loan. It's too risky, right? So many black people could not get loans, right? There's another piece to this, too, that I want to talk about. So Hulk was created in the 1930s, and these red line maps were used a lot in the 40s. Uh, In 1939, uh, there there was uh, great inequity in the army. This this is important, brothers and sisters. So uh, just bear with me for, for a moment, but just the, the segregation in America, the, the way that uh, things were separated amongst black people and white people, it was really, really stark. So in 1939, uh, out of the roughly 190,000 soldiers serving the army, only 3,600 were black. If you want to just see the stats here, I'll throw up this, this slide. This is what I'm reading from. That's less than 2%, right? So 98% of all of the, the, the army, it's comprised of white people. Right? The army would use uh, uh, discriminatory practices. They would come up with reasons why black people can serve. Oh, you can't read. But then the poor white people would get to go through. And, and when there was an educated black person, they'd be like, well, you just, you just can't come through. They use these discriminatory pra- practices to keep the numbers of black soldiers low. So in all of the armed forces in 1939, there were uh, 335,000 troops. Only five were black officers. Only five. Three of those were chaplains. So at the end of World War II, you have millions of people returning from World War II. And the government was like, okay, what are we going to do with all these people, right? Like, like they, they've been out of work for this whole time. We need to create jobs for them. These people need to, to um, start families, right? They need to own homes. And so there's something created called the GI Bill to help these returning soldiers uh, to, to get an education, uh, to get loans uh, for, for homes and businesses. And th- the thing is that um, the states were uh, allowed to use this. And remember, the representation in the army, it's, it's just disproportionately white. But of course, World War II, uh, the number of black soldiers goes up. But still, the states are controlling the GI Bill. So who do you think gets the money? Who gets the money? They get to decide, whoever they want to give it to. So in Mississippi, we aren't making this up, right? There were 3,287 loans that went out for homes, businesses, or farms, guaranteed by the GI Bill. Only two. Only two went to black people. The rest went to whites. That's 99.9938%. Similarly, in New York and New Jersey, out of the 67,000 mortgages that were insured by the GI Bill, only 100 went to non-whites, a little more than one-tenth of 1%. Right? Unequal access. That's what we're talking about. This is historic stuff. And so what happens is that when these mortgages mature, right, and, and the houses, they stay in the family or they stay in the neighborhood. These are mostly white neighborhoods, right? So even if it's not the same family, you get more white people living in these same houses, right? But 70 years later, if you fast forward to 1984, what happens from all of these loans that are given out? 
So what happens is uh, that the, the average, uh, the median net worth of white households in 1984 is $100,000. And the median uh, net worth of black households is $12,000, about 10%. Brothers and sisters, are you shocked? I didn't know this. Right? In 2013, things aren't much better. So the net worth of whites is 13 times greater than that of black people. 13 times greater. Another way to put this that Loki Mulholland mentions in his film, he says that another way to put this is for every dollar that a white person has, a black person has 8 to 10 cents. This is shocking, right? So now let's go back to the tale of the the flower boxes, right? So so this is what has happened in this country. Imagine that there was a gardener. With, with these flower boxes. This is what camera, Dr. Cameron Jones talks about. She says, imagine that uh, the gardener says, I like, you know, she has two different kinds of seeds. She has um, seeds that will produce red flowers and seeds that will produce pink flowers. And she's like, the gardener's like, I like red flowers. And so the gardener takes the seeds for the red flowers and puts them in the, the boxes with the fresh soil, the really nutritious soil right, and takes the pink flowers because she doesn't like them as much and puts them in the poor soil, right? And so, of course, what happens? The, the red flowers grow up really strong and really vibrant, and the really strong seed just, it's thriving. Even the weak seed still comes up to a moderate height. But then you look over at, at the, the, the boxes with the poor soil, and the pink flowers, man, they're struggling. Many of them don't even grow. And even the really strong ones can barely get up from a middling height. And so after time, the, the, the flowers go to seed, and they create new flowers, right? And it happens again. And then they go to seed again, and then they bring up new flowers, and then new flowers, and new flowers. And 10 years later, the gardener comes back and looks at the beautiful red flowers that are vibrant and growing, and looks at the really pathetic-looking pink flowers and says, see, I always knew the red flowers were better. Brothers and sisters, this is what's happened in our country, right? It's unequal soil. And so we shouldn't be surprised by many of the things that we see. And this is the part where the depression kind of sets in, is when you start to see that these things go back hundreds of years, and there are these cumulative effects that happen, right? So just talking about the the difference in wealth for, for, for white people versus black people. That, that this is something Loki Mulholland said, and it blew my mind. And maybe it will yours as well. It was shocking. Don't take my word for it, brothers and sisters. Seriously, think about this for a moment. Do you think this is true? And, and if, if you don't think it's true, it's because you don't want to believe it's true. But this is what Loki Mulholland said. Even if the economic discrimination faced by African Americans ended today, if they ended right now, it still would take several hundred years for black people to catch up to white people. Even if the economic discrimination faced by African Americans ended today, it still would take several hundred years for black people to catch up to white people. Now, Loki Mulholland says for himself in this documentary, he says, when I first heard that, I, I, I just thought, that's unbelievable. There's no way, right? But when you actually start to think about it, 
what, what we talked about today, we talked about housing discrimination, just one aspect. We talked about the GI Bill, right? This is just one policy, brothers and sisters, right? We didn't even talk about education. We didn't even talk about health care, right? So imagine that one policy, the GI Bill, creates that much disparity. And there are hundreds of these policies over uh, hundreds of years. So when you consider that, then no wonder. Oh, my gosh. Right? When you face all of this. And, and then, you know, what we were talking about last week, where we, we realized that that this is the reason why we say Black Lives Matter, because in this country, they didn't. They didn't for so long. Right? And you can't just say, well, slavery was back then. Now things are equal, because the soil ain't equal. There are these, these, these disparities that exist in our system, and they are very, very difficult to fix. And the thing that gets me depressed, brothers and sisters, the thing that makes me really sad is that people come along and the corporations and whatever are like, okay, so you're saying there's injustice. Okay, we'll get rid of Aunt Jemima. You happy? It's not enough, right? Even if you educated that, that gardener, you're like, hey, what you're doing is wrong, right? You know, and maybe the gardener, like every once in a while, a pink seed, you know, just the, the flower just woo, just ends up in the good soil. And the, the, the gardener's like, ah, I don't like the pink flowers, plucks them out, right? You could educate that pink farmer and be like, hey, what you're doing is wrong. It still doesn't change the soil. I mean, what do you do? What do you do? It's overwhelming, isn't it? Right? I mean, we described depression as just utter darkness. There's no light. There's no hope. Maybe for some of us, when we start to peel back the layers of a lot of this stuff, this is how we feel. We're like, why even try? And this is the thing. If you are a person of privilege, right, which in this country is a white person, and let's be honest, a lot of Asian Americans, yes, we do have some disadvantages. I'm not saying that we don't. right? That We have our problems, but in many ways, we have a lot of advantages as well. Asian Americans, relatively speaking, um, not as a whole, not as an amalgam, but just on average, at least financially speaking, are pretty well off, right? We have advantages. And it's easy for people who are not disadvantaged to give up, to get distracted, to say, you know what, this is, this is too hard. Oh, man, this is so depressing. Pastor Steve, you keep talking about this week after week. Can, can we move on now? Can we talk about stuff that makes us happy? For black people in this country and for hundreds of years, there's no moving on. They, they can't just distract themselves and pretend like the soil isn't rotten. Right? That, that is a privilege to be able to be distracted and say, uh, I don't want to hear it anymore. Right? We gotta face the darkness. We gotta face that this is a difficult, difficult job. But this is the hope that we have. Now, you see what depression looks like. It's darkness. 
oh my gosh, hundreds of years, hundreds of years of injustice. And it is not going to just go away because we got rid of Aunt Jemima. We just have these little slogans that come out. Because people held a sign. It's going to take more. It's going to take policy, right? It's going to take many, many, many people who care and who won't give up. It's going to take light. And this is what the scripture says that we read. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Where do we get our light from? We get it from Jesus. It says in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Brothers and sisters, we talk about this work, and, and sometimes people say, Pastor Steve, you know, shouldn't we separate, you know, politics or separate, you know, these social issues from faith? Well, brothers and sisters, when you think about what the kingdom of God was about, it was not about just going to heaven after you die. It was meant to come here now. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This earth should reflect the justice of God. If we are all brothers and sisters, that should be reflected on this earth. We shouldn't have unequal access to things. We shouldn't have people who are hundreds of years behind other people just because of the color of their skin. That should not exist in the kingdom of God, right? And so, brothers and sisters, when things are dark, this is where Jesus comes, right? Jesus would rage against the injustice, right? Clearing the temple when uh, the, the, the poor migrant people were being exploited, when the pilgrims were being exploited. No! Upsend those, those tables. He upends the system, right? This is about justice, But brothers and sisters, what's very important for us, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. But if this is the work of the Holy Spirit, then it doesn't entirely belong to you. It's not completely up to you. We have a big part to play. Don't get me wrong. But I am not the light of the world. Oh, let me assure you, I am not the light of the world. I'm not that good. No single person is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus wants justice. The Holy Spirit wants to bring about justice. The Holy Spirit wants to give you hope. Uh, This is Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so by that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So, brothers and sisters, if Jesus is the light of the world, right? In the darkness, right? You've got darkness and you've got light. And this is the thing, right? Remember, just to go back a couple frames here, this is darkness, right? And we're like, man, there is no hope. How are we going to solve these problems? But have you ever seen a single light in the darkness? Have you ever seen a single candle in the darkness? It's brilliant. I mean, it's, it's so bright. Because darkness is the absence of light. It says in Scripture that darkness cannot overcome, has not overcome the light. You know why? Because by very definition, light dispels darkness. Wherever the light exists, there isn't darkness. When Jesus came to this world, he came proclaiming the kingdom of God, 
the kingdom of God is at hand. It is right here. It has arrived. It is in breaking into this world. And when poor, oppressed people would come to Jesus, he would say, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. I mean, brothers and sisters, the powers that be don't like peacemakers. Right? Because peacemakers want to bring about equity. And that means taking power from those who are powerful. They don't like peacemakers. They kill peacemakers. What, what, what happened to Martin Luther King Jr.? What happened to many civil rights leaders in this country? They were murdered. They were peacemakers. That's what happens to peacemakers. Because the powers that be are threatened. They're like, no, 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 no. We don't want this change, right? Martin Luther King Jr., people look at him and they're like, man, you know, he's so peaceful and all this stuff. That's a rewriting of history. Yes, he was a peacemaker. But being a peacemaker means being a pain in the butt for the powers that be making life very, very uncomfortable for people in power, right? The FBI was surveilling Martin Luther King Jr. and his entourage, like, like all the time. You know, there's all these tapes that they have that will someday be re- released of them tapping his phones and following him around from city to city, right? They didn't follow him around because they thought he was peaceful. It's because they were afraid. The light is threatening. Why did the powers that be kill Jesus? It's because Jesus was so gentle. Jesus was so loving. Jesus was a peacemaker. Jesus was trying to upend the system. He flips over the tables, and then the very next beat, the very next beat, religious leaders say, we got to kill this guy. we got to destroy him. We can't have this. But this is the thing. Jesus was killed by the powers that be, but a greater power rose him from the dead. Many of the great social movements in this country, the civil rights movement, many of them were spearheaded, not entirely, but there were many Christians at the forefront. He is the reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., right? It was his faith in Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit that compelled him. Martin Luther King Jr. was not a perfect guy. He was not by any means. But what really drove the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was his faith. Right? What, what, what drives a lot of these movements is the power, is the belief that there is a light. And for us as Christians, it is a resurrected life. Light. It, it, it is a, a light that cannot be extinguished by darkness. The darkness tries to extinguish, and it gets resurrected. It can't be stopped. It can't be stopped. I, I want to close by um, talking about the March on Washington. So this is one of the really pivotal moments in the Civil Rights Movement. Um, it's not the only one. There were many, many moments uh, that were very monumental in the civil rights movement. But this is one of the most memorable because of Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech. That's what most people remember. Um, and, and I just always thought of it as the March on Washington. That, that wasn't actually the name of this, the, uh, of this event. It was called the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. 
And they were marching with very specific goals in mind. And many of these were targeted at institutional racism. And so they had very specific goals that they were going towards. Some of them had to do with discrimination. Discrimination in housing and for for workers, right? Some of them had to do with pay. They wanted to raise the, the average minimum wage in this country. They were addressing policy. They were addressing institutional racism. This wasn't just a march to say, you know, Black Lives Matter. I'm, I'm not saying that's wrong, right? But they had a very specific goals where they wanted to address the soil, right? They wanted to change policy. And let's be real. They didn't achieve all of their goals, right? All of the policy wasn't changed, but some things changed. And when you see footage of people there, what do you think drew people to the civil rights movement? Was it anger? Maybe at first, right? We talked about anger a couple weeks ago. Anger is necessary in this process. You've got to get angry about the injustice in this world. You've got to get angry about these things that are not right, that do not reflect the kingdom of God, but you can't stay there. That is not what is going to drive you. You know what drove people? It was hope. That's what drove people. I want to show you uh, just a little archival footage of the civil uh, of this march on Washington, the march on Washington for jobs and freedom, and you see all these people gathered, and. Um, you know, one of the performers there was Joan Baez, and she sang this song, which is a converted gospel song called We Shall Overcome Someday. And, and David's going to play this for us. Let, let's watch this. We are not that song that we just heard says, we are not afraid. We are not afraid. We are not afraid today. Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome someday. 
And I want to amend this a little bit for us this morning. It's not just that we shall overcome. He shall overcome. But we are called to be the light of the world because Jesus is the light of the world. We are like little Christ in this world. We are carrying the light of Christ. So oftentimes the darkness sees these threats. Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, or these other people, and just, just starts trying to stamp them out. Right? The darkness says, we can't have this. Let's put out these little lights. But when you see that footage, you see these thousands of people, these millions of people saying, you ain't going to stamp out this light. Because it doesn't just belong to one person. There's no stamping out the light of Christ. This is the hope we have. Yes, it's daunting. It will not be solved overnight. It won't be. It won't be solved by one tweet. It won't be solved by one policy. But brothers and sisters, if we want to be a part of the work of God, we cannot give up. We can't turn away when it gets inconvenient. We can't look away when it starts getting hard. We, we can't stop because we're getting depressed. We have to plug back into that hope to say, yes, the hope is not always going to be self-generated. I got to look to the light. I got to look at what God is doing and what God is capable of. And because the, the light of Christ is so much greater than my light, then I don't need to always have to self-create that hope. I can look at the cross and say, these things that, you, that God has done through Christ, these are so much bigger than sin, than racial injustice. It's so much bigger than these things when we believe that. Right? Even our own sin, you can't overcome that on your own. But Jesus already has. And this is the hope we have. So brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you Keep your eyes open. Keep your hearts open. Don't look away. Don't give up. Don't give up just because it gets hard. Right? Don't give up because it looks hopeless, because it is not. As long as we have the light of Christ, we have hope. In Jesus' name, amen.